Welcome to the Confluence Cast presented by Columbus Underground. We are a weekly Columbus-centric podcast focusing on the civics, lifestyle, entertainment, and people of our city. I'm your host, Tim Fulton. This week, in anticipation of this fall's election, the Confluence Cast is endeavoring to introduce Columbus voters to the 12 council and two mayoral candidates in their own words. Joe Motil wants your support to become the 54th mayor of the 14th largest city in America, and he's going door-to-door and person-to-person in a grassroots effort to ask for that support. In today's interview, Motel talks about his history in Central Ohio politics and his campaign platform. You can get more information on what we discussed today in the show notes for this episode at theconfluencecast.com. Enjoy the interview. Sitting down here with Joe Motil, candidate for mayor of the city of Columbus. Joe, how are you, sir? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Let's start off with who are you and what brings you to your candidacy? Who am I? Wow. Uh, I am a lifelong resident of Columbus, and I'm one of 11 children. I'm the seventh of 11. And... Uh, actually, I just briefly want to say you know, a little bit about my family. Mm-hmm. Uh, my father uh, grew up in a mining town in southeastern Ohio in a two-room house with uh, his uh, seven people and eventually made his way up to Columbus. Uh, he did uh, live with some foster homes and also at the St. Vincent de Paul Orphanage over on East Main Street for a while, as did some of his siblings. And he eventually also then would moved over to the uh, Grandview Heights area. Okay. And uh, that's where he met my mom, who also lived there. Uh, my father went to Our Lady of Victory High School. She went to Grandview High School. She was uh, one of the siblings of the famous Eagles Candies. Uh, okay. She's been around for a long, long time, and there's still one store left. But uh, my grandparents were the original founders of the Eagles Candies. And uh, my father, after World War II, uh, he, he received, like, it was a GI Bill, basically, back then. He went to engineering school up in Wisconsin. It wasn't actually to become an engineer, but to learn engineering. Okay. And he, when he came back, he got into the construction industry and became a carpenter at a local 200, and then eventually worked his way up as to a general superintendent. And my mother, of course, uh, did not work. Okay. <laughs> had to take care of 11 kids. So uh, I, um, I was actually born in the North London area. That's where my parents' uh, first home was. And I would only lived there for less than a year, and they moved over to Clintonville. I grew up on Clinton Heights between Calumet and Indianola and in a fairly good-sized uh, home. It was four bedrooms, one-and-a-half baths, had an entrance foyer, sunroom, lunchroom. It was a pretty good-sized house for mm-hmm. 11, uh, 13 people, I should say. But uh, it was it was a great neighborhood to live in, and you know, growing up Catholic, they were my parents were very devout Catholics, and I went to Immaculate Conception grade school, which was virtually across the street from where I lived on Clinton Heights. We just cut through the front yard, backyard of the house in front of the school. The people we we knew them very well; they were our neighbors, so it was no big deal. Yeah. And so I went to school there for eight years. Oh, I have to mention I went to kindergarten at Clinton Elementary. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> but uh, and then went to Waterson for four years, and most of my siblings all went to Immaculate Conception, and some of them went to North High School, which was just you know uh, about ten blocks down the street, basically yeah. down Calumet. And uh, we were as kids very involved uh, with sports. My dad played sports, 
And we just grew up playing baseball, basketball, and football, the three basic sports, a lot of us. And uh, it, during the summertime, I had a brother who actually played Division I football at Indiana University, played on a state championship team at Watterson High School in 1966. Uh, my sister Rose played on the first women's professional football team in Columbus, the Columbus Pace Setters. They, okay. used, to, they used to play at Mohawk over on Livingston Avenue. And she also played semi-pro uh, pro, uh, professional softball. I played basketball was my favorite sport. And I was a walk-on at Youngstown State University on the junior varsity. I only went to school there for a year. I had to pay my own way. So I just didn't have the money. And uh, when I came back, uh, I went to Ohio State for about six weeks. Couldn't stand it. They put me over on West Campus. Okay. And I wanted to be where where uh, things were happening on the Oval. To me, that was you know growing up and seeing Ohio State University. I wanted to go to school on the Oval, so one of those buildings there. And so I, I really couldn't stand it. So the rule in the Motel House was, if you're not going to, to school, uh, you have to leave the house and okay. uh, so and get a job and move out so that was the that was it so i moved to south campus just like a lot of my friends did you know from the clintonville areas cheap rent i lived near the corner of west 8th and hunter mm-hmm. and for eight years there i shared a one-bedroom apartment with mice and, and bugs and i was able to save up enough money to buy my first home on east oakland avenue and i actually began my uh, my activism while living on South Campus, and and I'm gonna have to mention his name. Yeah, I, I like to do this, but I was at the laundromat on Worthington Street one day, and this guy comes up to me and he says, he says, "Hey, do you live in the neighborhood?" And I said, "Yeah," and then he started to describe how there were a couple of uh, houses that had just been pretty much renovated, uh, new siding and stuff like that, just a couple years ago, and apparently uh, somebody had. Uh, peeled off the siding with crowbars and stuff and and vandalized the properties well apparently after you know discussion uh with the gentleman uh, which happened to have been cleve ricksecker and uh, okay <laughs> and a good friend of mine yep. i still say and uh who he lived on worthington street at the time uh, apparently the landlord the owner of the property had hired people to do this and so that he could justify tearing these structures down and building a larger apartment building and that was, and it was real close to where I lived. And I said, yeah, I noticed everything. I didn't know, you know what was going on and so forth and so on. So he and either it was his wife or girlfriend at the time, Barb Cooley, who I still know to this day and is a good friend and was a neighbor of mine on East Oakland. I'll get into that in a second. Okay. But they, um, uh, they were looking for support in the neighborhood, you know, to go down to the building department and talk to some official down there about this. So I went tagged along with them. And that's kind of like where it got started. And, and I started to notice a lot of different things taking place. And this was close to when I was just about ready to buy my first house anyway. This is probably around 84, 85. Okay. So... Uh, I, my first home, I wanted to live, stay in the university area and I would ride my bicycle up and down, uh, East Northwood and East Oakland Avenue nightly, almost waiting for a for sale sign to pop up. I had no idea. I was 30 years old at the time. I had no idea how to buy a house, what a realtor was or anything like that. But, uh, so when I saw a sign come up, 
uh, I immediately uh, knocked on the door, and the gentleman was there. And I, you know, and he, uh, his father had passed. His mother was going into retirement home, and he was selling the house. And I was like, I will put it on an offer uh, tomorrow. Mm-hmm. I found a realtor who was a friend of my sister's, who she had used in the past, and. Uh, we worked it out from there, and I made an offer on a house. And it's interesting that uh, one of the things that he was an attorney, and he asked me that, he says, are you going to live here? And I just was puzzled by the question, like, what do you, like, of course I'm going to live here. This is, right. this is why I want to buy the house. And so I didn't know why he was asking the question, but I said, yeah, of course. And uh, I said, I work in the construction industry, and uh, this is a fixer-upper, I can tell, and things need to be done inside. Uh, you know, a lot of things, you know, the kitchen was old, the carpet was on the floor and blah, blah, blah. But the woodwork was just absolutely gorgeous. There were stained glass windows in the house. It had three fireplaces, one in the bedroom upstairs, two downstairs. It was just an unbelievable home. It had a stairwell that led to the kitchen in the back and what have you. So uh, I loved it and uh, bought the house for I think it was $61,900 or something like that in mm-hmm. 1985. And I had saved up enough money. Uh, I was my rent in 1978, I believe, was ninety dollars a month for my one-bedroom apartment, and had only increased by the t- by 1985 to 130. So okay. I was working in the construction industry and had uh, most of the time I was working as a union laborer. I, I got into the union in 1981, but I worked for a non-union uh, seasonal contractor, concrete contract contractor for two years prior to that and that was some pretty tough going to say the least but anyways um so that was my first home and and i will say this you know back in those days i mean in the late 70s when i lived on south campus it was pretty interesting Uh, there was still a a widowed woman that lived across the street Mm -hmm. from us she was in her 70s there were families there there were kids on south campus there were people that owned two unit uh houses and rented one side and 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 lived in the other i mean it was it was a great neighborhood to really grow up in i mean to live in as a renter and it's changed of course dramatically since but um you know there were some tough times for me living there when i had to actually you know seasonal work concrete work i worked from basically april to november and I'd be on unemployment all winter, and that was tough. And there was a point in my time when uh, I had to uh, file for to, to receive food stamps for three months. Hmm. I had a I'll never forget. I had one of those blue books that used to collect coins with. Yeah. And I had Kennedy halves, and I mean I treasured this thing, but I had to sell it in order to you know pay my rent and you had to the pop bills them out and, and cash them in. I mean it was something that I treasured so much, and I was just like you know it was it was tough and. Uh, so, you know, I, once I got, you know, I'm not blaming the non-union job or not make, making enough money, but it was seasonal work. So once I got into the labor's union in 1981, uh, I was able to work full time in the commercial construction industry. So on East Oakland Avenue, when I got my house there, I found out, this is funny, here's Cleve Ricksecker and Barb Cooley who live up the street from me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm like, you got to be kidding me. And there's a lot of professors from OSU and families and kids. We had a daughter at the time that lived there and she went to Madary uh, Elementary uh, for a couple years and then went to Duxbury Elementary. Mm-hmm. But uh, so... I began getting real involved in the neighborhood there. Uh, Barb was involved with Columbus Landmarks at the time, and she kind of recruited me to try to get the neighborhood placed on the Columbus Register of Historic Places, the Northwood Park subdivision, which was Northwood Park from uh, Northwood in Oakland from High to Indianola. Mm -hmm. So 
I went, I was the person who went door to door explaining to everybody, uh, you know, the importance of it. And one of the reasons we did this or she did this was the fact that developers were just tearing down houses left and right in the, in the area. Mm-hmm. And there were homes on Norwich that people on Northwood would just look out their back of their windows and see, see them being torn down. So they were concerned that, you know, the developers are going to hit us next. You know, they're just going to move north and keep going. So we looked at it in terms of protection from the developers in terms of becoming an historic district and giving us some power to stop the, you know, any kind of demolitions Mm -hmm. of historic homes that we lived in. I mean, I, it was, I I saw beautiful Victorian homes being torn down in the South campus area and, and all over the place. And so, so anyways, we went, I was the one that went door to door. We did get placed on the Columbus register and I ran for a seat on the university area commission. I believe it was in 1988, and won that seat and was the zoning chair during that time as well. And uh, so I got involved with development, uh, zoning, code enforcement issues, things like that. I worked directly with code enforcement officers. It was, you know, back then, it was a lot different. Uh, you know, we used fax machines a lot back then. Mm-hmm. And I would actually just walk the neighborhood and write down violations and fax them off to the code enforcement officer who knew me. And at one point in time, he said, you know, Joe, if it weren't for you, I wouldn't have a job. And uh, <laughs> I mean, and, and I would and I have to admit, you know, I would be real careful about who I would write violations on and they were mostly going to be developers or people that own rental properties that weren't taking care of their properties and not necessarily homeowners Mm -hmm. and also businesses on high street i would i would be you know rolling my daughter down the sidewalk in her stroller down high street over just sidewalk that was just crumbling and crumbling i was Mm -hmm. just sick and tired of it so you know i was real involved with the code enforcement issues and things and and that is also being uh, living so close to Tuttle Park Recreation Center. Uh, after my three years on the Area Commission, I decided that I wasn't going to run again, and I wanted to kind of just concentrate uh, my efforts and things on different, on just maybe one thing. So, I, uh, a woman who was the head of the Tuttle Park Community Recreation Council, uh, heard me speak at a public meeting about some concerns I had about Tuttle Park. So she approached me after the meeting and said, hey, you should come to one of our meetings. And I did. And she pretty much sucked me into it. And I've been there ever since 1991. I've been the head of the volunteer group for 32 years now. Okay. And uh, so it's, it's just been a labor of love. Uh, you know, even though I don't live in the campus area anymore, we left in 93, I believe it was. We sold the house and moved back to Clintonville. Uh, even to this day, I'm, you know, the university area district has always been a part of my life yeah. growing up in Clintonville. I mean, I can remember in the sixties <laughs> going to the head shops, you know, buying your black light posters and yep. walking through the beads <laughs> and all that stuff on Pearl Alley and all that, you know, I mean, it was just, it was part of your life. Even as a paper boy, I delivered the citizen journal when, when I was in grade school, I can remember riding my bicycle down the lane and high when the uh, Vietnam war riots were taking place uh-huh. and you couldn't get, past lane and high because they had it blocked off but i mean you know we all knew it was going on and i just had to go down there and see you know what was happening but they had the street blocked off you couldn't go anywhere because of what was going on but you know like i said it's just it's always been part of my life the record shops the the bars the night the mm-hmm. nightclubs uh and such even in high school when all those bars used to be down there at papa joe's travel agency and all that kind of stuff i mean you know that was my era you know and it's and it's Tuttle Park that you're still involved in. There. Yeah. Got yeah, it. Yeah. Yep. Tuttle's been great. Uh, I've been through six directors at Recreation and Parks. And 
what we finally did sometime in the mid-90s, I think it was, uh, we asked the city of Columbus if we could uh, charge for parking for the OSU football games mm-hmm. because it's prime location. Uh, yep. You know, varsity clubs right up the street on Norwich there. The stadium's two blocks away. And so one of the uh, CRC members suggested, and we were like, yeah, why not? Let's see what happens. So yeah. we asked them. They gave us the go-ahead. Uh, we parked some cars up near the rec center. We were charging like five bucks, and we made a little bit of money. And and then we you know began to talk about it more and decided to use both parking lots, the one that was by behind what was then the uh, old Holiday Inn on the lane. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the lower parking lot, as we refer to it. And then we started parking cars in both lots. And it became a, a pretty, really good fundraiser after mm-hmm. a few years, after we got things organized and what have you. And we were never out to, like, gouge the people. We were just out to make some money uh, that would go directly back into the rec center. Yeah. And Similar to a PTA yeah, doing yeah. stuff, at, you yeah, know. Exactly. And it, it worked out great. And uh, to this day, we're still doing it. I think this is our 20... It's either our 26th or 27th year that we've actually uh, done this fundraiser. And we've probably raised... I'm just guessing somewhere between 400,000 and and maybe a half a million. That's great. And and the money has gone directly back into the park. I mean, when people that are familiar with Tuttle go down there and you see you see benches and you see receptacles and you see uh, murals and and uh, other things and uh, that was all funded through through our fundraising. Got uh, it. A lot of and all the uh, the. Uh, maintenance and things like that that are done on the gardens there's a pollinator garden memorial garden uh, butterfly garden uh, you know all that stuff that's all funded uh, through our crc group and and now the crc has uh, they're no longer in existence and we're kind of tied in which with the columbus recreation and parks foundation got it so we're now the, t- the friends of tuttle park and 30 percent of our proceeds for our fundraising now go towards uh, what's called the play program okay and play is uh designed to uh, help fund uh for, for children and teens that can't afford to get into programs that cost money the fees there yeah. at the so center they, yep. yeah so that helps provide the fees so they get 30 percent of our fundraising which which is fine it's worked out well we we actually used to provide funds to play just on our own uh but now that things have changed they we, we, we kind of haggled a little bit about the 30%. We thought that was a lot. So we said, well, wait a minute, you know, how about 20? But they wouldn't budge, so we had to settle <laughs> for the 30. But it's, it's been great. We just uh, uh, we got a skate park that was just put uh-huh. in a couple – two years ago now. I think it's been almost a year and a half. Unfortunately, though, things move so slow with Rex and Parks. That, that skate park took six years to go in okay and i'm not going to get into too much of the detail about that <laughs> there's there are some sore spots with that but it just took too long and uh you know being a big proponent of recreation and parks is they actually part of my campaign too okay i, I mean it's like i have w- witnessed that budget get slashed and slashed and slashed over the decades i mean it used to be one of the cadillac uh, departments of the city of Columbus back when Mel Dodge and people have heard of Dodge Park. Well, mm-hmm. Mel Dodge was a director who, who really got money flowing into the recreational park system. And I, and I think that just the fact that that uh, budget has been slashed so much has really had an impact on a lot of things that are taking place now in the city. 
So yeah, bring us up a little bit to where you're at in terms of your activism and other sort of projects like that and how it leads directly into your candidacy. Sure. So when I got involved, uh, when I was on the area commission and started to understand the politics of the city and the area commissions and this, that, and the other, you know, I was going to meetings representing the university area on zoning uh, issues, variances and such. I, I just, I was infuriated with the fact that uh, it just seemed like city council would never listen to us. And okay. it was just the same old thing. It's like, and people, you know, on the area commission, they, they would work with council and, and folks. But I'm just like, to me, it was like, they're not doing anything for us. They're ignoring us. Why are you even working with these people? And I thought, the only way I'm going to make a difference is if I'm sitting in one of those seven seats up there in that city council chambers. So in 1995, uh, I decided that I was, in 94 actually, I decided that I was going to run for city council. I had no idea what I was going to get into in terms of running for public office. I had never had any intentions of running for public office. Uh, It's interesting, though. (laughs) I was at a fundraiser once in the, around 1993, and former state rep, uh, Mike Stenziano, who is the auditor's father, uh, we knew each other real well. Actually, his ex-wife lived two houses from me on Oakland. Um, he, we were talking once and he said to me, he said, Joe, he goes, he he meant, he said, one of these days when you run for office, uh, this is going to be something that you're going to have to do or something. And I looked at him like, what are you talking about? Like, I have no, mm-hmm. no intentions of running for office, but he obviously saw something in me in, in terms of the type of person I was and my activism and my outspokenness and such at the time. So I decided to run in 95 and in that election and it was a non-expired term and uh there were people in the democratic party that actually that knew me personally and knew my family but i didn't know a lot of the politicians so to speak that were involved with the franklin county democratic party i didn't Mm -hmm. know the chair denny white at the time or any of those people but some of the people that knew me you know went to him and said yeah we know the guy blah 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 know his family so forth and so on so of course they didn't want me to run it was a uh, Lisa Griffin was the appointed city council member at the time. John Kennedy was president. Uh, she was pretty much, it's safe to say, she was handpicked by Kennedy. The council president typically had that power and authority and did so. Okay. Uh, you know, they had, you know, other people threw their hat in the ring. I believe Lynn Greer was one of them who was, uh, thought she had a chance. Uh, and she had some people behind her on city council, but the uh, council president had the, you know, pretty much the votes so anyways um back then uh during that election i needed you needed 1707 signatures to get on the ballot okay it was a percentage you know it's not like it is now of the population or elected yeah Yeah. right so so i had uh i drummed up 2404 signatures to get on the ballot and the Republicans also ran a candidate peggy fisher she was the head of the northland community council at the time and she was really not real involved in politics or anything at all. Okay. But uh, Greg Lashutka was mayor. And the electorate was much different back in 1995. That was 20, what, eight years ago. Mm-hmm. So there were still Republican office holders in Columbus and such, on city council, county commissioners, and so forth. And uh, even though the county, uh, Franklin County Democratic Party, tried to persuade me not to run, I said, no, I'm running. You know, I don't care what you say. And and I asked uh, some good friends of mine who were involved with the party. I said, what's going to happen? And they said, Joe, they're going to hate you because mm-hmm. <laughs> they'll be afraid that you're going to take away votes and she could lose. 
And I said, whatever. But I said, I'm running. I don't care. And so I ran. And Lisa Griffin, uh, bless her heart anyways, I, she's, I, I have a lot, great deal of respect for her. But uh, she, um, she, was a, she had her own consulting firm. And at the time, uh, Tuttle Mall was being built mm-hmm. out there on the west side. And she represented, I believe it was Edwards company who was the developer for Tuttle Mall and she also was a consultant for the New Albany company and New Albany was trying to merge with Plain Township at the time so she was the spokesperson for both of those groups and she was considered the face of evil to those communities and those neighbors uh, out there near Tuttle Mall and out in New Albany so uh, she would, you know, be the one that attended the meetings and such and speak and people right. didn't like her. And they all, everybody felt she was just in the bed with the developers. So anyways, <laughs> I'm getting phone calls from people that I don't even know. I mean, it's like out of the blue, like, we're so glad you're running, blah, blah, blah. We want to help you with your campaign. And I'm like, you know, who in the hell are you? <laughs> who do I trust and what have you? And right. it, was, it was really very interesting uh, to see what happened. And, and I'm just going to throw this out there to let people know. There was actually somebody who approached me. I had no idea who he was. He wouldn't tell me his name. He said his name was Sam. Okay. And it was a fictitious name. It was almost like Deep Throat. Okay. I mean, it was like he would call the house and and uh, one of my kids would answer, you know, they're like eight, 10 years old. And he'd talk to him on the phone and and they'd say, Dad, it's Sam. You know, he wants to talk to you. Right. <laughs> so we you know, he would he was one of my mentors. And I finally near the end of the election, uh, he finally told me who he was and such. And it was it was pretty interesting, but uh, you're not going to tell. No, us I'm what? not going to say who he is. Okay, <laughs> you'll have to read my memoirs. Fair, <laughs> fair. But uh, he he was very involved with politics and such, and he knew what was going on, and he was involved with the media and talked to him and stuff. So uh, it was he really taught me a lot in terms of campaigning and what needs to be done and the issues and so forth and so on. So so, uh, anyways, election time comes around in November and. Um, uh, Griffin loses okay. by 8,000 votes. I get 11,000. Okay. So Peggy Fisher, the Republican Party, they saw that, you know, Motil could be a spoiler in this. So they pumped a ton of money into a race. And Lasheka was mayor. And, you know, of course, he got a hold of his connections mm-hmm. uh, in the city. And, uh, uh, and the, the media, I mean, in, during the campaign also – Griffin actually accepted a, a contract with the airport out of Columbus Airport, and it was for and she was going to get paid one hundred and sixty five dollars an hour for it, hmm. and that was like headlines in the paper. And we, me and Fisher, both just jumped all over it. Yeah, and she actually had to she turned it down after after a few weeks because she was catching so much flack. I mean, it, it really Fair. looked bad. Well, but he, and you just to bring it forward, you can see that I think in some of the campaigning that you're doing now, sure. right? Oh yeah, latching on to hey, this is frankly fucked up this is not great how this is going down yep. and there's a person we can put in front of it and here's yep. what i would do differently yep yeah you made the you made the connections back then the guy that was helping me sam i mean he, he had me looking at campaign finance reports and and things like that and i began to get a good understanding in terms of who's financing the campaigns finding the connections between the companies the corporations the developers the big money who the players are 
you know, I learned all that early on mm -hmm. and I'm just 28 years ago. And so you can imagine where it's gone from there. <laughs> I know where the bodies are buried and such. <laughs> so, so anyways, yeah, after that campaign, uh, you know, no, the media of course would not, uh, say that, you know, Motil was responsible for this ele election loss. That's the last time a city council incumbent lost an election, yeah. by the way. So, uh, you know, I moved on and people in the Franklin County Democratic Party saw me as a potential asset for the party. So I wanted to run for state rep in 1996, immediately after in my district, which was kind of like Clintonville, Worthington, Arlington, Linden. Mm -hmm. And it was basically like 65-35 Republican. E.J. Thomas was the uh, state rep at the time. And there was an 18-year-old from Worthington High School that was going to run, and they would not. They said, no, you can't. We're going to endorse this guy. And I'm We're like, going to let the kid take a fall, basically. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. I said, my name's Fresh from the council race, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And they said, Joe, you know, it's same old crap, party, politics. You'll get your turn. Yep. So 98 came around and they said, okay, we're going to, well, we'll look at, you know, they're not going to, you know, they said, you know, run in 98, you know, your time will come. And I'll never forget, you know, Rich Cordray was like the head of the, the committee. Mm -hmm. And I told him, you know, okay, 98 time comes around, blah, blah, blah. Here I am. So in 98, uh, EJ Thomas was going to be term limited. That's when term limits in the state house first began. Yep. So I was like, this is perfect. Uh, he actually lived in old Beechwald at the time. And I was living in Clintonville. I was living over on Walhalla Ravine. We had a very small 1,100 square foot cottage home. Okay. <laughs> that was a fixer upper. That's where we moved to after we moved from uh, East Oakland Avenue. Yeah. And so um, I, I won the endorsement. It was a fight because there was, there was a... Uh, a group of people that were trying to take it from me and give it to somebody else, but I had to struggle for it. And, uh, and I'm sorry, this is for state rep, state again. rep. Yeah. Got it. And so I'll never forget, uh, Jennifer Bruner was, was in, uh, I think she was the chair of the committee at the time. And I went to her law office. She called me up and told me, Hey, you're, we're endorsing you. So that's was prior to the committee, the, the full vote of the central committee and such. But, right. uh, so they, I had their support, so it was a done deal. And I, and I was endorsed. Um, the election, it was great. I mean, I really enjoyed it. I was involved with, you know, state house issues at the time as well as city, you know, I understand what was going on and being a union member and things, there was a lot of, uh, uh, bills and things that were being pushed at the state house in terms of, uh, union activity and what have you. I did pretty well. Uh, I got 41% of the vote. Okay. And people were like, you got to be kidding me. And I, and I kept telling them during my election that, look, I know I can do real well in Clintonville. I said, that's, that's my base. And uh, so nobody had received 41% of the vote ever that had run against E.J. Thomas, with the exception of one candidate who raised a quarter of a million dollars, and she was from Worthington. And she okay. was, I believe she was either on the school board or a city council woman at the time so she had pretty good name recognition but other than that i i was the top vote getter out of i think it was you know seven elections that he had actually faced so i mm -hmm. did pretty well so uh, you know they said oh you know this is great i wanted to run again in 2000 he's term limited they said okay 2000 comes wrong. <laughs> my friend mark hatch who actually lived on northwood when i lived on oakland and we, okay. we knew each other real well uh, he was on the area commission, uh, university area commission at the time. And then 
uh, back then, and then he was the school board president during mm-hmm. 2000. Well, Mark said he wanted to run, and it was just like, you know, so, so they endorsed Hatch in the primary. Okay. He said, I tried to get him not to endorse anybody, but, uh, you know, that's the way it goes in politics. They're, they're always going to endorse their, their person in the primary, and right. they shouldn't, but they, sh- they did. And, you know, Mark's name was on the sample ballot, so that was the end of it. Yeah, pretty much. And a couple years after that, uh, they said, well, Joe, you should run for school board and get name recognition and this, that and the other. And I'm like, you know, you should do this and you should do that. And I said, this isn't for me. I'm not going to sell my soul to you people. And you're not going to tell me when to run, what to run for, how to, you know, how to think and so forth. So about 2002 or so, I got out of the party politics. Okay. You know, and in a, in a, somebody, uh, oh, it's been a several years ago. Uh, Judge Eileen Paley, mm-hmm. she was real involved back then with me. We knew each other real well. We were friends, and she was working her way up the ladder at the time back in 2000 and such. And uh, we met at an event, and she said, "She, uh, you know, Joe, I like you. She goes, but, you know, you went to the dark side. <laughs> and just jokingly, you know, mm-hmm. and I smiled, and I said, you know, Eileen, I like it there. That's where I belong. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, we laughed, and we're still, we're all friends, you know. And, yeah. Uh, and everybody, I respect everybody's, you know, in, in politics and, and the way they think and, and, and such, but... Uh, you know, it's politics. It is what it is. So uh, ever since then, I've been uh, out there kind of just, you know, speaking my mind and being outspoken about the issues and not following the the party, you know, in terms of, you know, I'm not part of the party machine anymore. Right. And that's fine with me because that's allowed me to be more candid and to express myself in terms of how I feel about the issues. And I'm not somebody... You know, I, I do my homework. I do my research. I understand the, the issues at hand. Uh, I ran in 2003, I believe it was, for city council primary and even got endorsed by the Columbus Dispatch. Some people said that's probably why you lost, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, no, it was, you know, I was like, well, I was shocked, to be honest with you. I thought, oh, my gosh, they endorsed me. This is great. And then I think it was 2000. I ran for as a write-in a few times just to challenge you know, mm-hmm. candidates, you know, at, at candidate events and such. And, uh, I ran, I was on the ballot again in 20, 29, uh, 2009, I believe it was a primary and then 2019 for city council. And then this race for mayor. So I've been on the ballot six times. This is not your first rodeo. Yeah, including state rep. So okay. actually official candidate six times on the ballot in 28 years. And that's not as much as my opponent. <laughs> I, trying to keep it high level, given given sure. our timing. Yeah. Uh, why are you running for mayor? You know, it, and I do I do sure. want to preface this by saying your issue areas and your platform are available at your website. Uh, we can hit on them high level, but you're running against an incumbent. Why are you running for mayor? Yeah, you know everything I've talked about. You know is is pretty much prepared me for this. And I think it's been kind of a, a gradual, you know, evolution and into, you know, what I've been doing, having run for state rep council and now mayor. And I'm one of the things that probably drives me is that I know so much about how it works. Okay. And, and, and it's, it's, 
it, it, that's what drives me and who and why things get done. And I don't see things getting done that uh, really pertain to the working class and mo low to moderate income people. I see just the rich, the powerful, special interests, the developers, corporations, institutions here in Columbus that are the primary, uh, you know, uh, ones that are benefiting from city tax dollars and such. It's, it's, it's almost like everything being done in the city, nearly everything, is to enhance and protect the investments of the rich and powerful in the city and why things get done. And that's what drives me. It's just, uh, you know, I, I know why and who, and I, I continue to fight it. And I mean, I'm continuing to fight for the people in the neighborhoods of the city, and that's just not a stump speech. That's the facts, and people know that. I get contacted by people all across the city to ask for my help. I don't okay. know who these people are, and they call me or somebody called them and said, you should talk to Joe Motil. You should see if he can help you. He, you know, cause he understands this and he can get you through the process and do what he can to help. And I always have. And I mean, whether it's the West side, whether it's recently like the Greyhound bus station or the little turtle mall road, a uh, little turtle roadway project. Yeah. I mean, development projects across the city. I'm still involved with things that take place in the university area. They call me up, you know, even though I'm still involved at, at Tuttle Park, but uh, development's a big issue of mine. I've worked in the construction industry. I'm retired now, but for 40 years. Mm -hmm. And I worked as a labor, union labor for 24 and as a construction safety manager for 14. So I, I have a very good understanding in terms of, uh, you know, what it's like to work as a blue collar worker. Mm -hmm. I raised my two kids r working as a union labor. And then fortunately enough, I landed a job in safety and worked on uh, five projects that were all over $100 million where I spent two to three years on uh, one of them, the most expensive one. And the last one was the Mount Carmel Grove City Hospital, which is a $355 million project. I was in charge of safety at that job. I had uh, 535 workers on there at mm -hmm. one time. But so I've had a taste of what it's like to work as a blue collar worker and as a white collar worker. I've, I've sat at tables with engineers, architects, owners, CEOs, presidents in meetings nearly on a weekly basis at, you know, on construction sites. Our team out at Mount Carmel Grove city was probably 30 people, you know, and uh, I worked at the, you know, I was in charge of safety at the Dublin Methodist hospital, uh, the convention center remodeling and renovation project for nine months. Mm -hmm. uh, the a large project for Patel out in West Jefferson, a large dorm project at Ohio university. Uh, I worked over at the student um, uh, union for Ohio state university. I mean, you know, so I understand construction. I understand development things of that nature and i understand you know as it as an artist and a musician an athlete uh you know that's that's really i think contributed to forming my views and my life uh you know socially and economically having been able to interact with different people from different social and economic backgrounds mm -hmm. and and that's helped me tremendously to understand you know what i do and and whose needs are you know what what needs people need and and so forth do you feel like having operated outside of the system for so long you'd have difficulty net governing outside of the system outside of you you haven't been in city government oh well, you know well i i i think <laughs> i understand city government pretty well i mean i've actually uh, probably been involved with almost every city department at some okay. point in time in my life. So, yeah, I mean, you know, seriously, it's, it's, you know, department of development, whether it's code enforcement, the recs and parks, I mean, 
numerous departments uh, I've been involved with. So I understand how city government works. There you go. Yeah. And folks can learn more about your platform and the initiatives that you'd like to accomplish as mayor uh, on your website. And that'll be linked in the show notes for this episode. I guess uh, to to get to uh, the the beginning of the end of this interview, can you is there more that you'd like folks to know the listeners of this podcast and Columbus Underground specifically? Sure. And, and that website is jomotil.com. Pretty simple. But, you know, and I, I read, you know, I, Columbus Underground, I get mm-hmm. it on my email server and such. And, uh, you know, I know what a lot of the concerns uh, and issues are pertaining to those that are listening to this. And I just want people to know, especially like affordable housing. You know, I've heard people mention, you know, say things about me and the fact that I'm against density and this, that and the other. And I just want people to know that, no, I am not against density. My my issue has always been and my feelings about density has always been about where and how much. I mean, I'm you know, I am not opposed. I am opposed to like 13 story buildings at Lane and High and things like that uh, that are inappropriate for the character of certain neighborhoods. But I am not against high density. I'm not against building doubles and four unit buildings and secondary streets and things like that, uh, ADUs and what have you. So uh, again, I just, uh, I, I think there's some issues on my website that can address that and, and people can also go there and ask me comments about it. Uh, some of the other things uh, like uh, I am an avid bicyclist, mm-hmm. as many people know, and some people don't, <laughs> but I've been riding a bicycle uh, since I was 18 years old, used to ride to work and things of that nature and continue to ride. And I do believe in, in uh, protected bike lanes and I understand it. I get it. And I want to, uh, you know, do, you know, in, incorporate more and more uh, protected bike lanes in the city. We're not doing a good enough job with that. Parking lots, empty parking lots. I hear that to be a lot of concerns uh, in the downtown area and what to do with them. And I agree that, you know, we should be building on them. But the problem with building and building more and more downtown on these empty parking lots, we're putting the cart before the horse because we do not have transit in this city. That's Mm -hmm. worth a darn. I'm sorry, but it's mediocre at best. So if we're going to build on these empty parking lots, let's get our transit system together beforehand because... Where are these people going to park that, that work in these buildings if we don't have proper transit? I'd also see a lot, would like to see some of these empty parking lots turn into parks. And that would be, for instance, the city purchasing the land and turning it into green space. Uh, you know, the, the climate change is just, you know, it's, we have one of the worst cities in the United States in terms of heat island effect, air pollution, canopy coverage is 22%. I mean, we can do a lot better in terms of growing trees around the city of Columbus. I see empty uh, tree uh, boxes up and down High Street all over the place. And, it's, and I keep hearing how we're going to grow grow more and more trees, but I don't see it happening. We need hmm. to do, I can do a lot better job in terms of um, uh, working as mayor of this city to make sure that, you know, there's better tree canopy coverage. It's just, it's just not being done. And I'm sorry, but I don't see it happening under uh, our current mayor. The... Um, those are just a few of the things, and, and as some of you know, I'm very active with the homelessness as well. Uh, they invited me to some encampments about two years ago, uh, some of the homeless advocates to see firsthand what's going on in these encampments and such, and I've learned a tremendous amount in terms of uh, you know what needs to be done to help our, our homeless, and I have a 
housing initiative, housing first initiative on my website that I hope people that, that will go to and, and read more about that and read about my affordable housing initiatives. It's nothing compared to what the city's proposing. We need a steady stream of of revenue to address our affordable housing uh, crisis. And that's addressed on my website as well in terms of increasing the hotel motel tax for the affordable housing um, trust fund from 8.43% to 25%. The city has been sitting on ARP funds for over two years, 187 million. That number has gone down quite a bit, but it's unconscionable that they haven't spent any of that money in terms of to buy affordable housing units. And my plan is on there as well. Uh, there's a lot more that we can be doing that we, you know, Columbus Partnership, I said, should create their own affordable housing trust fund. Mm -hmm. Why aren't they? The 80 richest corporations and developers in the city of Columbus are you are Central Ohio? Are you kidding me? They should have their own a tr a trust fund. Uh, I, I it, it just burns me when I read like uh, in the news the other day, Franklinton, you know, 10 affordable housing units. I mean, so what? Are you kidding me? What is 10 units? If the Columbus Downtown Development Corporation actually wants to do something about affordable housing, then let's put 200 units on the Scioto Peninsula. I mean, I hear the word NIMBY being tossed around all the time by people saying, you know, Joe Motil's a NIMBY, this person's a NIMBY. It looks like, to me like some of the corporations are NIMBYs and some of these big developers are NIMBYs. Why aren't they building a lot of affordable housing units in places like the Scioto Peninsula and, and, you know, more and more? You know, 10 units here, 20 units there, uh, set aside units for tax abatements isn't getting it done. I'm sorry, but it's, you know, it's counterproductive for the tax abatements and such. That's meager in terms of the amount of affordable housing units that we truly need. And when we're saying affordable housing, we're talking 60% AMI for people making $40,000 and less. So uh, think about that, too, when you read my website. I, I know I'm gonna, I could go on and on about this, but uh, please just uh, you know, take a look at my website, everybody. It's, it's very uh, extensive. It doesn't cover 100% of my uh, platform, but it probably covers about 80% of it. So, and, it, and if you have comments or questions, uh, you can make those comments and questions and email them to me, and I'll read them, and I'll get back to you. Well, and I was going to say, I bet you're willing to talk about it. Any Absolutely. Any folks have. <laughs> uh, I end every interview with two questions. What do you think Columbus is doing well, and what do you think Columbus is doing not so well? Boy, what is Columbus doing well? Well, they're getting jobs. I mean, we're, we are, uh, you know, people are coming to the city and we're expanding our, our you know, economically uh, and financially. But the problem is it's not trickling down. Uh, it's only going to certain people. And we're protecting those investments. And if we continue to build, like, market rate housing, uh, for basically, it's for the labor pool of corporate Columbus and institutions. Uh, it's just going to get worse. Homelessness is getting worse. Evictions are by the dozens every day. And if we, we, sure, everybody says we need to build and build more houses. I don't disagree with that, but it's never going to catch up in terms of providing truly affordable housing with the more housing we're going to build. If somebody can tell me when that's going to happen, I'd like to hear your number because I don't think it's going to happen. I think it's five to 10 years away. And what are we going to do in the meantime? Mm -hmm. Sure. We can keep building and building and building and all the market rate housing that's being built. The job center is going to be saturated with market rate housing and people that truly need to live near the job center. So they don't have to live 20 miles away or 15 miles away uh, you know, they're not going to have housing. So we need to create 
more truly affordable housing near the job centers. And I think, and as mayor, that again, and I have said this on the record, that uh, I want to buy property, put out an RFP mm -hmm. to a nonprofit organization, housing, and let's build it in the, in the core area of the city. So there's a lot of those lots around mm -hmm. that we could do that on. And we need to do more of it if we're if we're really going to do something about providing affordable housing in our job centers in these desirable neighborhoods, because sooner or later it's going to become unaffordable for everybody. Joe, thanks for your time. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. It's great. Thank you for listening to the Confluence Cast presented by Columbus Underground. Again, you can get more information on what we discussed today in the show notes for this episode at theconfluencecast.com. Please rate, subscribe, share this episode of the Confluence Cast with your friends, family, contacts, enemies, your favorite advocate. If you're interested in sponsoring the Confluence Cast, get in touch with us. We can be reached by email at info at theconfluencecast.com. Our theme music was composed by Benji Robinson. Our producer is Philip Cogley. I'm your host, Tim Fulton. Have a great week.